If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and this is our fourth show for May 2019. We are recording this on Friday, May 24th, just before the um, Memorial Day weekend gets underway, and just this morning, you saw the news about the Sonic movie, right? Yes, I did. Uh, It was very interesting news, and not completely surprising, but... Still somewhat surprising. Okay. Well, for those of you who haven't heard this yet, April 30th, we had the full official trailer drop, which the internet basically lost its mind over the design of this Sega character that nobody liked how Sonic looked. Two days later, three days later, Jeff Fowler, the director of Sonic, takes to Twitter and puts out a message to the effect of, we hear you loud and clear. We're changing the look of Sonic. We're going to make the movie version more in line with what you know and love from the Sega game. And Paramount's out there assuring exhibitors that the movie is still going to be able to make its previously announced November 8th release date. And you were more concerned about the container ships filled with Sonic plush that were already on their way to America? Yeah. I wonder if they're going to try to redesign all that stuff now, too. Yeah, but... Sonic, with its November 8th release date, was already in a very, very tough spot box office-wise. November 1st, Terminator Dark Fate was coming out. In fact, did you see that trailer? It came out like a day or so ago. Yeah, I liked it. it. What did you think about it? This is, what, the 25th time we've rebooted the franchise? Right. But this time, for sure. I like seeing Linda Hamilton again. I like seeing Arnold... This one definitely had an interesting take. And so, yeah, sure, why not? Let's give it another try. I mean, they said that they've said that the last nine <laughs> times they've tried to re- reboot it. Okay. This is really something. All right. But it is di- it is directed by a former animator. We should say Oh, that's that. true. That's true. Uh, d- d- who's produced who's producing Sonic the Hedgehog? Mm-hmm. For better or worse, well, yeah. Remember also that this is the Deadpool guy, so we that was actually one of the reasons why I thought, okay, I'm willing to give this one a pass because, you know, I love what he did with Deadpool, and so let's see what he does with Terminator. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay, jumping to the weekend before Sonic was supposed to come out, November 8th, that's when Doctor Sleep, the Stephen King sequel to The Shining, is supposed to come out this with right. Ewan McGregor, and given that back in the first week of September... We've got chapter two of It coming out, and It did ridiculous business a year or so back. So, and I'm sure Warners will use It to make people aware of Doctor Sleep. So, you got these two films sucking up box office. November 8th is the weekend that Sonic was supposed to come out. And then two weekends later, you have sort of the ultimate the defense line that, that no family-friendly film can make it past. Frozen 2, Playmobil, the movie, and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Hum Hanks is, is Fred Rogers' movie, oh, wow. all come out on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So Sonic only had 12 days all by itself at the box office, which it really didn't have by itself because it's the same weekend as Dr. Sleep. Right. <laughs> in a weird sort of way, maybe it's a good thing that they have, in fact, pushed it out to this February 14th, 2020 release date now. 
Mm-hmm. All right, now you look around that date. On February 7th, we've got Peter Rabbit 2 coming out. The actual date that the movie's supposed to come out, we already had the third Kingsman movie set to go, The Great Game. Right. Any idea what this Disney untitled live action would be? No, I was thinking about that because I saw that it was going to that same mm-hmm. weekend, and I don't know what that is. I have no idea. It's not Artemis Follow, right? Artemis Follow got pushed no. further back than that. The weekend after that, you've got Chris Sanders' Call of the Wild, and I'm going to that. I mean, it's Chris Sanders. Yeah. And then, of course, March 6th, Pixar onward. Very, very, very tough spot. That You know, it's going from one tough, tough spot on the schedule to another tough spot on the schedule. You know, this isn't the first time that Paramount's actually had to redesign a character in one of its movies because it was disturbing. And it's like, do you remember the thing about monster trucks? Oh, yeah, I do. Remember I, I had forgotten yeah. the story about it was a, originally supposed to come out May 29th, 2015. So they're shooting in April of 2014 up in British Columbia, Vancouver. Evidently, uh, there was a test screening. They had enough footage together. They did a test screening and the kids were so frightened of the monsters inside of the monster trucks that now they start pushing out the release date. January 26, 2015, they announced that it's it's moving from May 29th to, I mean, they pushed it all the way to Christmas Day. And what they did is they threw monster trucks into the Christmas Day 2015 release date. But that gave them the opportunity to actually move up Rogue Nation's release date? Yes, I remember that, when they lost six months of post-production on the, on the movie. And as you know, these movies are not easy to put together. That speaks volumes about the studio's confidence in what they were seeing. Wasn't this one of the ones where, where Tom injured himself on it? He was uh, he was pretty okay on that one, but it, it was one where they had, had scrapped the original ending and had to kind of come up with it on the fly, oh, which is, you know, always a really stress-free way to make a movie. <laughs> and speaking of Mo- Monster Trucks, is another movie that was made by an animator because that was Chris Wedge's live-action. Yeah, uh, Ice Age. If you talk with the, the folks at Paramount, they were actually happy to take Rogue Nation out of the December 25th window because Force Awakens was supposed to open then and the 24th Bond uh, Spectre. So it was like, yeah, sure, let's let's move out of that window. But they kept pushing and pushing, you know, and sliding the date back. In fact, I think the saddest moment was they pushed November 2015. They pushed the release date all the way back to January of 2017. And then... Four months before the movie even comes out, Paramount announces that they're taking a loss on it. That they virtually wrote off everything they spent on it, mm-hmm. $115 million, because there was, you know, they just knew there was just no way people were going to go to see this. Or when they announced the project in 2013, you know, it's, hey, it's our new franchise. It's a live action animated yeah. thing. And that's what's going to be intriguing about the Sonic situation. If we see this release date get pushed back yet again. That to me says they're out testing the new look for Sonic and this one didn't work either. Right. And wasn't that under the Paramount animation banner too? Monster trucks. Yes, definitely under Paramount animation. Sonic, it's a Paramount pictures project. And it's just sort of like, okay, so not animation with your animated character, but who knows how they think in Viacom. Right. This weekend, 
We've got Aladdin finally opening up for the long Memorial Day weekend, and you actually got to see a press screening last Saturday or thereabouts. And yes, oh yeah, I haven't so I haven't talked about it yet. Yeah, I really liked Aladdin. Yeah, I thought it was great. Disney was managing the box office expectations, saying sixty-five to eighty-five, but just as we're recording tonight. They were out with new numbers. They're suggesting that they could have a hundred million dollar opening weekend, ninety-five to a hundred. Do you think they put the other number out lower just so they could be pleasantly surprised, or was this managing expectations? What? I think it was managing expectations. I think that you know a lot of people have blamed the marketing for not, sort of uh, you know when they see the movie they say it's it's better than any of the marketing, but I think the marketing was pretty on point in terms of. Delivering, you know, the fun stuff, the genie stuff, the kind of oversized stuff. I think it is surprising in a lot of ways. Maybe it's just better than people thought it was going to be. But I could see that word of mouth taking this really far. And there's supposed to be a lot of rain this weekend Mm -hmm. in the the West. So that could bring people in. And I also think that, you know, families are going to go see it this weekend and tell other families. And I think it's a pleasant surprise. It's not going to be Jungle Book numbers, I don't think, but it's going to make more money than Dumbo, at the very least. This year, especially between Dumbo and Aladdin, and we are, what, three weeks out now from from Toy Story 4, and then right behind that, Lion King. And when you get to the fourth installment of a series, it does get challenging as to how do you make this different. When you look at Disney as a global company, not every division of the company is going with, okay, let's go with the stores. Did you see what the the Disney folks in Australia have done? No. Pixar Putt. It's literally drew a pop-up miniature golf course. Ooh. Disney Studios partnered with Lifelike Touring. This thing opened, I want to say, in Melbourne in January. You have the option of playing a full 18 holes or a nine-hole course, but every hole is themed around a, a Pixar movie. There's a Coco-themed hole where you they have a giant version of Miguel's uh, guitar, and you have to bounce it along the strings to, to reach the hole. Oh, my God. That's so cool. There's a Finding Nemo hole where you've got to dodge the hungry seagulls on the wooden pier. But the up hole is supposedly the toughest one of all. That First, you have to hit the ball into Carl's house, and then you have to work a winch that then carries the house to the top of Paradise Fall. And only then, once you land the house, can you open the door, and the ball has to fall just the right way down the falls if you're looking to get a hole in one. And if you Google Pixar putt, there's all sorts of, of photos from the stop in Melbourne. And they then went on, well, Melbourne, hugely successful. They had 25,000 people come out in the three and a half weeks that it was in place. In fact, they had to start offering adult only hours on uh, Friday and Saturday nights because the demand was so much to get on the course. And it's made a stop in Brisbane, or it's about to. And then from there, it's supposed to travel internationally. The reason I bring this up is, well, well, first of all, you know, of course, it's the way they're promoting Toy Story 4 is as you enter the golf course, they have two giant stylized versions of Woody and Buzz. And you encourage folks to get their pictures taken there. But pivoting now to, to Bob Chapek, the, the chairman of uh, Disney Parks, uh, Parks, Products, and Experiences. This is all about the billion-dollar franchises. That's what he wants them to be building ride shows and attractions around. And 
Disney World has the fantasy, Fantasia Gardens, the, the a golfing fantasy. Of, uh-huh. You've done that, right? I've actually never been, but I would love to. Love is the wrong word, Drew. I, it's, <laughs> well, first of all, there's the Fantasia Gardens, which is side, which is themed around, obviously, the Fantasia movie from 1940 and you know it, it i mean this thing opened in may of 96 and it's cute but the on the other hand if you make the mistake of playing the fantasy fairway side of it i've talked to professional golf golfers who find the fantasia fairways challenging really they talk about the lowest score that anyone's ever gotten there was 54 the holes are that difficult to, to land right you know about the cove right the the new hotel that's being built. In fact, they pulled down the tennis courts and a lot of the supporting buildings for the rec area next to the Dolphin and the Swan. Oh, my two my two favorite Walt Disney World eyesores, yes. They're building a brand new 14-story tower right next to the Dolphin and Swan, uh, Swan. In fact, when this is completed, the three hotels together will have 2,600 plus rooms. They'll have 350,000 square feet of meeting space. It will then count as the third largest hotel on Disney property. Half the rooms in the Cove are business suites. So, you know, half of the 343 rooms they're building. But this is also a very serious business-driven hotel that is now going to be right next to the miniature golf course. I can't help but think that here's Pixar Putt doing land office business, you know, over in Australia. It's about to tour internationally and. Here we have Bob Chapek, who's all about billion-dollar franchises and that sort of thing. And I'm thinking that when The Cove opens in March of 2021, how likely is it that Disney's going to keep open this thing that celebrates a 79-year-old hand-drawn animated film that everyone pretends to like? Do you really like Fantasia, Drew, if, if you're... Uh, I was wearing my Night on Bald Mountain t-shirt the other day, Jim, so I... Uh... Okay, that's not an answer. <laughs> that's a fashion choice. <laughs> I think everybody likes to pretend they like Fantasia, but... Uh... Right. I actually saw something else that's marketing Toy Story 4 overseas. I was walking through the studio mm-hmm. today, yep. Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, and they had this cool screen up, and you stood behind these little placards... Mm-hmm. And you moved, and you were actually controlling what Forky was doing on this screen. Oh, it was so cool! Wow. And I said, "Where is where is this going?" And they said, "Oh, you know, it's in like like subway stations in Asia." And I was like, "Okay, this is like the coolest like promotional thing I've seen in a long time." And it is just overseas somewhere in a subway, mm. but it was very very cool. Okay, this kind of kills me that we're out in L.A. How many? Building size billboards are there now for, for Toy Story 4, or are they still Aladdin? They are still Aladdin right now, but I think they're probably going to be switched over soon. And I know that, you know, we're getting some very big animated trailers coming up soon for the forthcoming Pixar and uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios films. But there was another trailer this mm-hmm. week for Abominable. What did you think about that? Did you get a How to Train Your Dragon toothless vibe off of the Yeti uh, in a good way? Yeah, I thought it looked cute. Mm. I mean, the thing that we need to tell everybody is that the animation was not actually handled by DreamWorks Animation. It was handled by Pearl. That's exactly. Which which used to be Oriental DreamWorks, Mm. correct? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but mind you, it's Jill Colton. The you probably best know for her work on Open Season over at Sony. She also wrote the first draft of the Monsters Inc. Screenplay. That's true. That's true. So yeah. you know, I've always loved her work, and it was a really charming trailer. I mean, I love the mix of the urban environment, then cutting to the nature, and 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 more to the point, I I loved the manipulation of nature in the film. I mean, it was one of these things where it's like, okay. This is why we go to animated films, to go to see this sort of stuff. So very, very much looking forward to catching Abominable when it's out in theaters in September of this year. On the other hand, one movie that we we won't be seeing anytime soon is Bubbles. No, we kind of called this one. Yeah, out. I know, I know. But given what a wonderful job he did on Thor Ragnarok... I'm blanking how to say his name again. Taika Waititi. There we go. He did such a beautiful job there. And so I was genuinely sort of looking forward, uh, you know, to him stepping into the stop motion sphere. And I don't know if you, you saw the coverage earlier today, but there were a number of folks who were upset because they took this job rather than... I saw yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, the new Pinocchio and I... I forget the other stop motion project. The Henry Selleck. There thing, we go. Which again, I don't think that'll ever get made either, mm -hmm. but you know. Just the source material, the notion of, you know, we're going to tell the story of Michael Jackson's chimp bubbles. And, but the, the interesting thing is when he was talking about how they're going to frame the film, that it, it was more to the effect of this chimpanzee trying to navigate its way in the human world in a, a very, very bizarre take on the human world. And to hear him talk, they were still struggling with a look. They were still struggling with what the movie was actually about. You still have to wonder if the HBO documentaries did, in fact, finally took this thing out. But do we have to wonder? I think that was I think that was the death yeah. blow, if anything. But this was Netflix. It wasn't a question of how are we going to find space for this thing theatrically. Just sort of like, hey, this is available for downloading now. And in five minutes, mm -hmm. there'll be something else to download. Someday, the script's going to bubble up, and I'd love to read what it was that caught people's attention about this. Because wasn't this on the blacklist? It was actually the, at the top of the blacklist, I believe in 2015, which is the highest the highest rated unproduced script in yeah. Hollywood at so, the time. Yeah. But Taika has another movie that's coming out from Fox Searchlight in October. Another remake. Yeah, they just dated his Akira mm -hmm. uh, remake for Warner Brothers for 2021, mm -hmm. which is very exciting. But he has a smaller movie opening this year from Fox Searchlight called Jojo Rabbit that's like a, a wartime satire. Oh, 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 no. oh and, my God. Is this the one where he plays Hitler? Yes, yes. That's coming out this year, and it's positioned for an awards run, so that'll be very interesting. I've seen a couple of images from this, and... I have to see this. Right. The notion of, of the little boy who, in his head, has befriended Hitler. Taika himself was playing the role, right? Or Yeah, correct. And and I don't know, have you been watching the What We Do in the Shadows TV show? Oh, yes. <laughs> you know. I mean, is that not the most brilliant thing on TV right now, or what? It's so hard to explain to people about why it's so fun. These vampires who've come over to the United States and are trying to find their way and you know whether they're at the supermarket or dealing with with you know government bureaucracy and i mean it's it's so low-key it's so left-handed and then it will do something that is so 
ridiculous, so over the top. I mean, it's this wonderful mix of elements. I mean, it's yeah, I I, I am in love with it. And if you've seen the original movie, it's different vampires mm-hmm. in America. Yep. But on a recent episode, which you can attest mm. to, we see those three original vampires from the movie. So they're still, it's the same universe. Mm. It's just so much fun. I look forward to it every week. I think it's its so great. To pivot, though, to his big live-action remake of an animated film, Akira, mm-hmm. how are you going to do that? I mean, you you and I have followed how many times they've tried to set this thing up and it's fallen mm. apart over the past 10 mm-hmm. years. Yeah, I don't know how you're going to to do mm-hmm. it. Warner Brothers acquired the rights in 2002 mm-hmm. and have been trying to adapt it since, which is just insane. Mm-hmm. It said Stephen Norrington was attached to direct at one point. Alan and Albert Hughes, like everybody has done it. So I wonder what Taika's approach is that will set it apart. On the heels of just what happened with Alita Battle Angel, mm-hmm. that's another attempt at doing an animated look in live action. Well, do we need to look at a little thing called Ghost in the Shell as oh, well? Geez. For how that can mm. go wrong. Remember how they how Paramount was toying with the idea of augmenting Scarlett Johansson's face to make her look more Asian? That's right. That's right. <laughs> mm. Yikes. Okay. Well, yeah. all right. Let's put it this way. I, I I love his work. I wish him well, but it just it it's like watching a friend wander into a minefield. <laughs> you know, it's like good luck. Right, right. And you want him to do something original, mm. you know, something a little bit more wild than a big budget studio remake of a cartoon from nineteen eighty eight. But you know what? It'll be great, I'm sure. I hope. I don't know. I pray. <laughs> We'll see how it well, goes. Well, now, speaking of somebody wanting somebody to do something original, you just did an amazing interview with Alan Menken, keying off of the uh, live-action Aladdin, which we'll share with you once we get back from the commercial break. I love this interview. You did such a nice job with Alan, and we're not going to shut up. Listen to this interview, and we'll... we'll Talk on the other side there. All right. So I thought we would start off with your involvement in the in the original movie because you came on a little later, right? You and Howard were not. No. Okay, you were there for the from the beginning. It wasn't our idea. Okay. Well, tell tell me about that. Well, Howard, we had Howard when he went to Disney was offered three possible projects. One was uh, Tina Turner autobiography, I Tina which became What's Love Got to Do With It. And I think he did a treatment or something. And then, then there was Thief of Baghdad and there was Little Mermaid. He said, I want to do Little Mermaid. However, Thief of Baghdad, I think, kind of generated an idea of doing Aladdin. Um, and so we were working sort of simultaneously on an early version of Aladdin at the same time as Little Mermaid. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then we, it went back into development uh, and to make room for Beauty and the Beast, which okay. became the next. Uh, there, was, there was a little bit of skittishness, you know, about the Arab sensibility um, at Disney. Okay. And um, and then when we came back to it, uh, then we dove into it. Howard was then ill, but we got through what we thought was the you know the completed score. And then there was a day called Black Friday when Jeffrey Katzenberg saw the movie and said, eh, "This isn't working." And it has a more of a romance as opposed to being sort of a, a buddy picture with a, you know, a, uh, uh, 
uh, you know, a girl, but, you know, it's kind of like a Hope Crosby Rose picture in its structure as, a, as, as, and, as well as tone. Now, I kept that tone, but structurally wanted a romance. Okay. Howard was then gone, and Tim Rice came aboard, and we finished it together. Okay. Was this the version that had, like, Aladdin's mother was still alive? That was the they, earlier one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was where they had Proud of Your Boy, and we had the three side texts, Bab, Kakar, Moore, and Kasim. So you had uh, so High Adventure, and uh, 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 Bab, Moore, Aladdin, Kasim was a, a song. It's in the Broadway show. It's in the Broadway show. Right. Well, I was going to ask you about this sort of... You've seen this through so many iterations now. What is that experience like for you? Is it sort of a chance to go back and, you know, like put in those songs that you, you had to cut out? And, I mean, it's a job. Yeah. It's a job. I, um, but at least it's a new medium. Yeah. So the new medium allows for reinvention uh, in a way that if someone said, I want to do a di- another animated movie of Aladdin, you know, we'll add some things to it. I go, oh. Um, the medium really, you know, pushes the agenda uh-huh. a lot and in live action. And, of course, the director. In live action is a director's medium. So in, in live action, then, if you have a guy, Richie... Right. Yeah. I mean, was there any... Did you push for including the some of the songs from the, the Broadway show in the movie? Yeah, a little bit, but that didn't last long. <laughs> was it just an issue of time, or guy? Guy had no awareness of the Broadway show. Oh, okay. Um, number one, number two, the sensibility of the Broadway show is very razzmatazz and very classic. You know, um, almost it, it has sort of vo- almost vaudevillian moments in it, mm-hmm. which are appropriate for the form. Guy really wanted something that was much more contemporary in the treatment of the songs. Right. Um, clearly, he wanted the heat in the relationship between Aladdin and Jasmine. He wanted uh, Aladdin to much, have much more swagger to him. Um, and that all manifested in rearrangements of the songs. Well, it's interesting because the Broadway show seems to kind of have informed other versions in terms of having an African-American genie, which we saw at the Disney California Adventure show. Well, this, right? stop. Okay. The genie, the model for the genie always was Fats Waller. Okay. I was I was at first not thrilled about it being Robin Williams. Really? Because he yeah, because Robin Williams looks like look like Fats Waller. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but that has become sort of part of the tradition now, right? Of course. Yeah. Well, yes. However, always it's a Fats Waller song. Yeah. A friend like me and the Cap Calloway Fats Waller. It's Harlem jazz. Okay. So it, it, switching to a black genie was extremely natural. Right. Um, how do you feel sort of about the current state of Disney musicals? You contributed a song to Wreck-It Ralph 2, obviously. The yeah, well, that was basically... There's, there's a genre called Mencken doing Mencken, which is <laughs> we want to throw in a Mencken in something. <laughs> I did. Um, which is fine. It's flattering. You know, that's like what I did for Sausage Party. I threw in right. a Mencken. Um, uh, the current state of Disney musicals... I'm not particularly a part of the current state of Disney, of new Disney musicals. Right. They just keep coming back to my old ones. Um, and uh, I would be lying if I didn't say it's, you know, I, I prefer, I suppose, a new, a new musical to reinventing an old one. But the, the success of these is so huge that you can't argue with it. Yeah, I mean, do you like what sort of, like, you know, like what Lin-Manuel did on Moana or... or... Yeah. Yeah, okay. I do. Okay. I do. Um, 
I, but it's not what I do. I do something different. Yeah. And what Bobby Lopez and uh, Kristen Lopez did on Frozen was very good. Um, it's not what necessarily what I do. They're closer to it. What do you? What, I mean, what do you? What do you think you do? What is the sort of? I'm much more. Uh, I, I use much more specific vocabularies and a much more varied palette of them. Okay. I. I I create a world that's familiar that I know how to, I know what the vocabulary of it is, uh, and I'm driven in that direction. Um, uh, Lynn is brilliant, and Lynn creates his own world, and, but every writer has a different way of, of navigating in a musical. So my way is one way. I, you know, Bobby, Lynn, I've known them, both of them, I've known of them, both of them, since they were little boys. Right. They both went to Hunter School in New York. Lynn went to, went to school with my niece. I heard about him as he was growing up. Bobby, I wrote his recommendation for college. I know, these, it's ironically, these, this generation, top of that generation are you know, practically my boys. Right. Um, so I have no, you know, I have no ups, upset about them doing Disney. And I just... I'd, I'd rather be doing something new. Yeah. Um, but I think I'd probably have to come to Disney with my own idea because that's not the way they're driven right now. A lot of it's driven by other, you know, by coming to them with a specific. And I frankly haven't had time for that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember Joss Whedon saying that the the because he worked on some musicals at Disney too. Who? Uh, Joss Whedon. Who, oh, Joss Whedon. Yeah. Right. He said, you know, he said that the Disney musical died with with Howard, but that clearly is not the case. But I mean, there is well, a, a, one part of it. Listen, yeah, but I mean, really, what I did with Stephen and what I did with Glenn, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's an ever evolving form. Right. There's no dying of it. It's just, but you know, the Ashman Menken uh, uh, collaboration died with Howard. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever become as close to you know? Oh yes. As, okay. My collaborators. Okay. I love them. I don't think there's anybody that's Howard's equal. No, not lyrically. I, I, well, more than lyrically, just the whole in the whole package, the whole sensibility. Howard um, had a uh, you know the breadth of his ability to embrace a musical and cultural style in a fresh way um, was wonderful. Yeah, and. Um, and what we did together was unique. Yeah. Um, and, we, and there's a little bit of work left that, you know, we, that has never heard, the public hasn't heard, but not a lot, not enough. Um, From the movies you were No, a, we did a, a musical, uh, uh, on Life of Babe Ruth, that we, we, both, we dropped it because it was legal issues that just got to be, so instead we, were doing, we did Little Shop of Horrors. One and of my I, favorites. I had five songs from that Babe musical that are just out of this world. I someday want to find a way to um, bring that back. I've, I've been playing with it because uh, it's just such a limited amount of unheard Ashburn material. Yeah. Uh, well, before I, I get thrown out, I just wanted to ask, I mean, you, you are still involved in these live-action remakes. How is, how is Little Mermaid going? How is how, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame going? Okay, Hunchback is at the very starting gate, which is I haven't even seen... A first draft of anything script wise so but there's questions I have questions about it because it's you know what are we going to be able to put into a live action version of Hunchback that will still go under the name Disney 
you know, it's, that's, that's a, that becomes a, a question that will be hard to answer without specifics. Right. Um, uh, mermaid is, is um, we've had two meetings. And Lynn is very busy right now with his In the Heights movie. Mm-hmm. Rob Marshall is, I know, doing work on the movie right now, just, you know, casting ideas, things like that. I've seen a treatment, and I think it's going to be great, but we have not written anything together yet. I just have musical ideas that I've been playing with, and it's, just, it's early, early does a, days. Does a new Hunchback feel sort of validating? Because I feel like that's such an underrated Disney movie. The idea that someone will do it, yes, is validating. Um, but, but, you know, my concern will be, what do we do? Right. What is the new Hunchback musical? Now, we're going to go off the record. All right. And we're not allowed to talk about the Hunchback thing, right? Not at all. Right. We're not allowed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But we can say he is working on a Hunchback. There we go. There we yeah. go. And wasn't Josh Gad for a while... You know, or is he still? I think he's pro- I think he's producing it or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, I got some intel from from his assistant that it seems like the Little Mermaid remake is is imminent. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if casting is announced at D twenty three or possibly before. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like Rob Marshall has been, and this is from my interview with him from a, a few weeks ago, has been like doing some test footage and stuff. So I, I think we're gonna be seeing things from Little Mermaid sooner rather than later. Cannot wait. We talked at the top of the show a little bit about Mission Impossible. What's going on with Light Diffuse this week? This week we've got a great, it's a, it's a conclusion of a, of a two-parter with the managing editor of uh, Star Trek.com, mm-hmm. which is super exciting. And we talk about the marketing for the movie. So we go over all the, the posters, the trailers. Um, this is with Kendra James, who's really fantastic interview subject. And um, so that's this week. June 7th, our Paul Hirsch series starts. Jim, you're going to love this series. Mm-hmm. We talk about every... The third episode is almost entirely Star Wars. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make Dan Z at least listen to that one. Cool. Cannot wait. Our side of the fence, uh, the usual pile of stuff, folks. We got Disney Dish with Lentesto. We got, uh, as Drew just mentioned, looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. We got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We got Marvel Us Disney. And then we, of course, have I Want That, the Disney merch podcast uh, that I do with Michelle Valladolid. And I guess we're going to have to start talking about all the merch for Galaxy's Edge soon. That's if there's any left. For now, folks, thank you for listening and have a good night. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.